0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hard cider. What do you have, Dell?
1: I am drinking a sidecar, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the serial killer who terrorized New York City in the late 1970s with a revolver. David Berkowitz, better known as the Son of Sam, used New York as a hunting ground and started one of the biggest man hunts in the the city's history. Let's rewind and discuss more about Berkowitz's background and then we'll look at his crimes. Berkowitz was born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His birth mother, Elizabeth Betty Broder, gave him away a few days after his birth. His biological father was a man named Tony Falco who alleged. left the family for another woman. Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz adopted him and renamed him David Richard in addition to giving him their last name. He was raised as their only child in the Bronx. David lost interest in school at an early age despite not showing any intellectual disabilities. He was interested in setting fires and committing petty larceny. David was known as a spoiled bully in his neighborhood. To address this behavior, Mr. and Mrs. Berkowitz took David to a psychotherapist, but nothing came of this. Unfortunately, at the age of 14, David suffered a major tragedy. His adoptive mother died of breast cancer, and his dislike of his adoptive father's second wife made home life very difficult. In 1971, David joined the United States Army and served at Fort Knox and in South Korea. He was honorably discharged in June of 1972. He then located his birth mother, Betty, who shared the details of his birth. This left David distraught, and he was dismayed about the numerous father figures who were not in his life. Forensic anthropologist Elliot Layton described Berkowitz's discovery of his birth details as the "quote unquote" primary crisis of his life—a revelation that shattered his sense of identity. Berkowitz began committing serious violent crimes in the mid-1970s. On December 24, 1975, David stabbed an unidentified Hispanic woman. He then. Stabbed Michelle Foreman six times near a bridge. Foreman was hospitalized for a week following the attack. He attempted to murder someone else with the knife again, but fell and then switched to a handgun, the 44 special caliber Bulldog revolver. He then began his crime spree across the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens. The first shooting occurred at 1:10 a.m. on July 29, 1976. Dania Loria and Jody Valente were sitting in Valente's car. When Loria started to leave the car, David approached. He produced the gun from the paper bag that he carried and crouched. Bracing one elbow on his knee, he aimed his weapon with both hands and fired. Loria was struck by one bullet that killed her instantly. Valente was shot in her thigh and a third bullet missed both women. The shooter turned and walked away quickly.
0: Valente survived her injury and said that she did not recognize the killer. She described him as a white male in his 30s with a fair complexion, about 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighing about 200 pounds. His hair was short, dark, and curly in a quote-unquote mod style. Neighbors gave corroborating reports to police that an unfamiliar yellow compact car had been cruising the area for hours before the shooting. On October 23, 1976, a similar shooting occurred in a secluded residential area of Flushing, Queens. Carl DeNaro and Rosemary Keenan were sitting in Keenan's parked car when the windows suddenly shattered. Keenan quickly started the car and sped away for help. The panicked couple did not realize that someone had been shooting at them, even though DeNaro was bleeding from a bullet wound to his head. Keenan had only superficial injuries from the broken glass, but DeNaro eventually needed a metal plate to replace a portion of his skull. Neither victim saw the attacker. Because DeNaro had shoulder-length hair, police later speculated that the shooter had mistaken him for a woman. Police determined that the bullets embedded in Keenan's car were 44 caliber, but they were so deformed that they thought it was unlikely that they could ever be linked to a particular weapon. High school students Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lamino walked home from a movie shortly after midnight on November 27, 1976. In a high-pitched voice, he said, quote, Can you tell me how to get... End quote. but then he quickly produced a revolver. He shot each of the victims once, and as they fell to the ground injured, he fired several more times, striking the house before running away. A neighbor heard the gunshots rushed out of his house and saw a blonde man running past, gripping a pistol in his left hand. Damasi had been shot in the neck, but the wound was not life-threatening. Lomino was hit in the back and hospitalized in serious condition. She was ultimately rendered paraplegic. At about 12:40 a.m. on January 30, 1977, Christine Frund and her fiancé John Deal were sitting in Deal's car near the Forest Hills LIRR station in Queens. Three gunshots penetrated the car. In a panic, Deal drove away for help. He sustained minor, superficial injuries, but Fround was shot twice and died several hours later at the hospital. Neither victim had seen their attacker. Police made the first public acknowledgement that the Froon Deal shooting was similar to earlier incidents and that the crimes might be connected. All the victims had been struck with 44 caliber bullets, and the shooting seemed to target young women with long, dark hair. NYPD Sergeant Richard Conlin stated that the police were, quote, leaning towards a connection in all these cases, end quote. At about 7.30 p.m. on March 8, 1977, Virginia Voskarichian, was walking home from school when she was confronted by an armed man. She lived about a block from where Frund had been shot. In a desperate move to defend herself, Voskarichian lifted her textbooks between herself and her killer, but the makeshift shield was penetrated. The bullet struck her head and ultimately killed her. In a March 10, 1977 press conference, NYPD officials and Mayor Abraham Beam declared that the same 44 Bulldog revolver had fired the shots that killed Lauria and Voskarichian. At about 3 a.m. on April 17, 1977, Alex Esau and Valentina Suriani were sitting in a car belonging to Esau's brother on the Hutchinson River Parkway service road in the Bronx. A resident of a nearby building heard four shots and called the police. Suriani, who was sitting on the driver's side, was shot once and Esau twice, both in the head. Suriani died at the scene and Esau died in the hospital several hours later without being able to describe his attacker or attackers. Police said that the weapons used for the crime was the same as the one which they had suspected in the earlier shootings.
1: Police discovered a handwritten letter near the bodies of Esau and Suriani written mostly in block capitals with a few lowercase letters and addressed to NYPD captain Joseph Borelli. With this letter... Berkowitz identified himself as quote-unquote son of Sam for the first time. The letter expressed the killer's determination to continue his work and taunted police for their fruitless efforts to capture him. It is filled with misspellings and grammatic errors. The letter begins with quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. The letter ends with, quote, to the people of Queens, I love you. And I want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and goodnight. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang, Ugh. yours and murder, Mr. Monster, end quote. The police hypothesized that the shooter blamed a dark haired nurse for his father's death due to the quote unquote too many heart attacks phrase and the fact that Loria was a medical technician and Valente was studying to be a nurse. On May 30th, 1977, Daily News columnist Jimmy Burslin received a handwritten letter from someone who claimed to be the 44 caliber killer. That was another name for the son of Sam killings. The letter was postmarked early that same day in Englewood, New Jersey. On the reverse of the envelope, neatly hand-printed in four precisely centered letters were the words: "Blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, and 44 caliber." The letter begins: quote, "Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood." Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallows up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dry blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 caliber killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily, and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jen, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood, Breslin notified police who thought that the letter was probably from someone with knowledge of the shootings. The letter was sophisticated in its wording and presentation, especially when compared to the crudely written first letter and police suspected that it might have been created in an art studio or similar professional location by someone with expertise in printing, calligraphy, or graphic design. The Daily News published the letter a week later after agreeing with police to withhold portions of the text, and Breslin urged the killer to surrender. The dramatic article made that day's paper the highest-selling edition of the Daily News to date, with more than 1.1 million copies being sold. Police received thousands of tips based on references in the publicized portion of the letter, all of which proved useless. As all of the shooting. Victims today had long, dark hair, thousands of women in New York City acquired shortcuts or brightly colored dyes, and beauty supply stores had trouble meeting the demand for wigs.
0: On June 26, 1977, Salvatore Lupo and Judy Placido had left the Alifa's discotheque in Bayside, Queens, and were sitting in Lupo's parked car at about 3 a.m. when three gunshots blasted through the vehicle. Lupa was wounded in the right forearm while Posito was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of the neck. Both victims survived their injuries. With the first anniversary of the initial 44 caliber shootings approaching, police established a sizable dragnet that emphasized past hunting grounds in Queens and the Bronx. However, the next and final 44 shooting occurred in Brooklyn. Early on July 31, 1977, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante were sitting in Violante's car, which was parked under a streetlight near a city park in Bath Beach on their first date. They were kissing when a man approached within three feet of the passenger side of the car and fired four rounds, striking both victims in the head before he escaped into the park. Violante lost his left eye and Moskowitz, the only blonde victim of Berkowitz, died from her injuries. According to David Abrahamson's Confessions of Son of Sam, local resident Casilia Davis was walking her dog at the scene of the Moskowitz Violante shooting when she saw a patrol officer, Michael Cataneo, ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. Moments after the traffic police had left, a young man walked past her from the area of the car and seemed to study her with some interest. Davis felt concerned because he was holding some kind of quote-unquote dark object in his hand. She ran to her home, only to hear shots fired behind her in the street. Davis remained silent about the experience for four days until she finally contacted police, who closely checked every car that had been ticketed in the area that night. Berkowitz's yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy was among the cars that they investigated. On August 9, 1977, New York police detective James Justice telephoned the Yonkers Police Department to ask them to schedule an interview with Berkowitz. According to Mike Novotny, a Yonkers police sergeant, the department had their own suspicions about Berkowitz in connection with strange crimes and their jurisdiction, which were referred to in one of the Son of Sam letters. Yonkers investigators even told Justice that Berkowitz might be the Son of Sam. The following day, on August 10th, 1977, police investigated Berkowitz's car, which was parked outside his apartment building at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. They saw a gun in the back seat, searched the car, and found a duffel bag filled with ammunition, maps of the crime scenes, and a threatening letter addressed to Inspector Timothy Dowd of the Son of Sam task force. Police decided to wait for Berkowitz to leave the apartment rather than risk a violent confrontation in the building's narrow hallway. They also waited to obtain a search warrant for the apartment, worried that their search might be challenged in court. The initial search of the vehicle was based on the handgun that was visible in the back seat. although possession of such a handgun was legal in New York State and required no special permit. A paper bag containing a .44 caliber Bulldog revolver of the type that was identified in ballistics tests was found next to Berkowitz in the car. Berkowitz then stated flatly, quote-unquote, well, you got me. As described in Son of Sam, 1981, by Lawrence D. Klausner, Detective Falatico said to the suspect, Now that I've got you, who have I got? Berkowitz was interrogated for about 30 minutes in the early morning of August 11, 1977. He quickly confessed to the shootings and expressed an interest in pleading guilty. According to Rasmo, during questioning, Berkowitz claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the reasons that he killed, stating that the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls. He said that the quote-unquote Sam mentioned in the first letter was his former neighbor Sam Carr, and that Harvey Carr's Black Labrador was possessed by an ancient demon which issued irresistible commands that Berkowitz kill
1: people. A few weeks after his capture, Berkowitz was permitted to communicate with the press. In a letter to the New York Post dated September 19, 1977, he alluded to his original story of demonic possession, but closed with a warning that has been interpreted by some investigators as an omission of criminal accomplices. Quote, there are other sons out there. God helped the world, quote. At a press conference in February of 1979, however, Berkowitz declared that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax. Berkowitz later stated in a series of meetings with his special court-appointed psychiatrist David Abraham Sean that he had long contemplated murder to get revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. Three separate mental health examinations determined that Berkowitz was confident to stand trial. Despite this, defense lawyers advised Berkowitz to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but he refused. Berkowitz appeared calm in court on May 8, 1978, as he pled guilty to all of the shootings. At his sentencing, two weeks later, Berkowitz caused an uproar when he attempted to jump out of a window of the seventh floor courtroom. After he was restrained, he repeatedly chanted, quote, Stacy, who was his last victim, was a whore, end quote, and shouted, quote, I would kill her again. I would kill them all again, end quote. On June 12, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each murder to be served consecutively he was ordered to serve time in Attica Correctional Facility, a supermax prison in upstate New York. Despite prosecutors' objections to the term of Berkowitz's guilty plea, made him eligible for parole in 25 years. Berkowitz is entitled to a parole hearing every two years as mandated by state law, though he has consistently refused to ask for his release, sometimes skipping the hearings altogether. Before his first parole hearing in 2002, Berkowitz sent a letter to then New York Governor George Pataki requesting that it be canceled. He wrote, quote, In all honesty, I believe that I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have with God Help long ago come to terms with my situation, and I have accepted my punishment. Quote. His lawyer, Mark Heller, noted that prison staff considered Berkowitz to be a quote unquote model prisoner. Commissioners denied his parole request. His next parole hearing is scheduled for May of 2024. After rampant speculation about publishers offering Berkowitz large sums of money for his story, the New York state legislator swiftly passed a new law that prevented corrected criminals and their relatives from making any financial profit from books, movies, or other enterprises related to the stories of their crime. What are your thoughts on The Son of Sam, David Berkowitz?
0: I do think David Berkowitz definitely had some mental health issues. I will say, too, I think that this is kind of like a growing theory. I don't think David Berkowitz is the only son of Sam. I think he committed some of these crimes. I don't think he committed all of them. For example, there was the one case where it was a man with blonde hair, and I don't think He met, you know, other parts of him at the physical description of David Berkowitz that was running away from the scene. I do think he was part of a larger group. And I know we've talked so many times about like, you know, satanic panic and like satanic cults not being real. But I do think he was part of a larger like cult-like group that was committing these acts. I do think mental illness and I guess not peer pressure, but like, you know, being group think, I guess really did lead him to believe he was like being possessed by this dog the neighbor's dog I do think the neighbors were also possibly in on it based on some things I've heard I know that this theory I think was largely talked about in a Netflix documentary that came out a few years ago I haven't seen that but I am interested in it but to me it just doesn't seem like he could realistically do all of this by himself, especially when he was not meeting some of the physical descriptions. I think he's like the prime example people give when they say, oh, like this killer has turned to God. And many times I think people equate that with being like disingenuous. I feel like it is genuine with him. I'm not saying because of that he should be released from prison. I do think he probably deserves to stay in prison. But I find it very interesting that he's against his own gaining of parole. He seems to be at peace with what he's done. And if he was part of some larger, like, satanic group, cult, whatever you want to say, I can also kind of believe that once he's in prison, like, thinking about what he's done, he would, you know, fall into christianity so i think it is more genuine with him i do think like i said it's interesting that he doesn't want to be released and he's advocating against his own release i do think the son of sam law is interesting and i think is very important i know we've talked about that in the past what are your thoughts on all of this
1: i think you bring up a really good point of there might be more to the story than what you know the open and shut nature really provides for because It'll be one thing if he continued the story prior to his conversion, then we could chalk it up to, well, he just trying to diminish his responsibility, you know, he's doing a bunch of things related to that. But the fact that even after his conversion, he still maintains that this was part of a larger network, a part of a larger cult, definitely makes me believe him a bit more. He definitely knows that he was at least a bit responsible for, you know, the killings that he directly participated in and others that he may have helped with. The evidence in this case is also a bit murky if you look at it because they stated multiple times that they actually weren't able to match the shell casings with the gun. So we actually don't even know if the exact same gun was used in all of the shootings. We just know that it was the same type, which doesn't really speak much to one person being responsible. It could easily be a situation where they had the same type of weapon and they were communicating with each other.
0: The New York Police Department launched a massive manhunt to find the son of Sam. While searching for fugitives remains a common law enforcement occurrence, manhunts are a rarer phenomenon. In law enforcement, a manhunt is an extensive and thorough search for a wanted and dangerous fugitive involving the use of police units, technology, and help from the public. A manhunt is conducted when the suspect believed to be responsible for a serious crime is at large and is believed to be within a certain area. Any police units within reach of the area will then participate in the search, each covering parts of the area. If possible, the officers will form a perimeter around the area guarding any and all possible escape routes from the containment. A manhunt may have one of the following outcomes. The successful capture of the suspect within the area of the manhunt. The death of the suspect within the area of the manhunt. Escape from the area by the suspect, followed by plans by other law enforcement agencies to search for the suspect elsewhere. The search being called off if police determine the chances of catching the suspect are minimal. Also, if the fugitive uses deadly force to resist law enforcement officers, they are typically authorized to respond in kind.
1: There are several notable agencies that handle extensive manhook. These include the AFOSI, or the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, Bounty Hunters, the British Security Service, MI5, and the Greater London Metropolitan Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, and the FBI hostage rescue team, Interpol, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Special Weapons and Tactics, or SWAT teams, the Texas Ranger Division of the Texas Department of Public Safety, and the U.S. Marshals Service. Sometimes, police departments conducting manhunts will solicit help from the public in locating the suspect. They will do this by broadcasting a description and other information on television, radio, and other public media by going door-to-door and asking individuals if they have seen the suspect or by placing wanted posters Mm -hmm. in public places. When this happens, citizens are advised not to personally confront the suspect, but rather to call the police and report their sightings. One type of manhunt for which public participation is normally sought is an Amber Alert. In an Amber Alert, the main purpose of the mission is to rescue the victim ahead of the capture of the suspect. The public is usually given notice of an Amber Alert through additional forms of media, including highway overhead signs and text messaging. If anyone is found aiding the suspect in any way, such as helping the suspect in hiding or providing false information to the police about the suspect, they may face legal consequences themselves, even being charged for the same crime as the suspect. Some famous manhunts include John Wilkes Booth, the 2001 anthrax attacks, Bonnie and Clyde El Chapo, the Zodiac Killer. Jenny, do any of these manhunts stand out to you?
0: What stands out to me personally, um, I guess because it's like the freshest in my mind, is over the summer in like our general area, there were at least two manhunts involving like escaped prisoners that were very high profile, I believe at least one of them would have made national news. That is a forefront for me. I guess maybe El Chapo and then hearing about Bonnie and Clyde too, just knowing how like dramatic that was and how it ended and the Zodiac killer, I guess too, because it's so, so well known. We've covered it. I think most true crime people are familiar with that case, you know, and how that was never solved i think it's pretty interesting i also thought it was interesting too hearing about the agencies involved because i wouldn't really think about all that needs to go in like all the strategizing and all the people like the literal manpower needed to help out with this because i don't know i guess i would kind of think like you know anybody can kind of do it but when you need you know an extensive manhunt i thought it was kind of interesting to see all of these crews laid out I wouldn't have thought of an Amber Alert as a manhunt but I guess it really is what are your thoughts what stands
1: out to you so definitely just like you said the general scope of it I think in a lot of ways especially when you are reading about past ones you know like John Wilkes Booth and Bonnie and Clyde the scope of it doesn't seem real and just the coordination that goes on, I think that's probably why you need like a FBI MI five, you know, to be involved because they'll be able to cast, you know, a wider net in terms of pulling people in. I mean, for the U.S. Marshal Service and bounty hunters, especially, this is what they do, you know, all day, every day. Like, this is their main thing of being able to hunt people down. Also, just make sure that the general public is safe during these manhunts. Because while some manhunts might be for, you know, like serial killers, it could also be for spree killers who are essentially creating like a battle zone in these places and the police need to be able to quickly locate them and, you know, neutralize them so they don't continue to hurt other people.
0: That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the son of Sam. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Ruby Frankie. As always, stay safe. (laughs)